0: This week's episode is brought to you by The Curse of La Llorona. Have you heard her cries? The Curse of La Llorona is full of suspense and terror, as recently widowed social worker Anna Tate Garcia tries to protect her children from an evil that has no bounds. The dark spirit of La Llorona is hunting children and weeping for her own, who she drowned in a jealous rage. From producer James Wan, The Curse of La Llorona. Only in theaters April 19th. Today's episode gets a little dark and violent, so there's a pretty strong disclaimer this week. Check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, we're going deep into the legends behind La Llorona, a terrifying figure from the folklore of Latin America. And sadly, you'll see yet another reason on this podcast for not helping out people you meet on the street. The creature this week is the long-requested Chupacabra, the goat sucker who sucks goats. This is Myths and Legends, episode 140, No Way Out. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. It's a dark and peaceful night, one perfect for a late night stroll. The air is slightly crisp, and all is calm. So there you are, walking outside through the woods. Somewhere out there, the moon is high in the sky, but it's not very bright tonight. That's when you stumble upon a woman dressed in white, just up ahead, tucked between the shadows of the trees. You squint as your eyes adjust for a better view. Yes, there she is. A noise catches your attention just before you realize that she's weeping. Through her tears, you parse together that she's looking, searching for her children, crying out to everyone and no one at the same time that they're lost. Please help her. You, being a decent person, resolve to approach her cautiously. It's late. Too late for children to be out by themselves. Too late for anyone to be out by themselves, really. Gently you tap the weeping woman on the shoulder. Would she like some help finding her children? You can't imagine what she must be feeling. Strangely, the woman doesn't turn around. She just keeps weeping. So, you pat her on the shoulder and speak a little louder. It'll be okay. You'll find the kids together. Still nothing. Mustering an encouraging smile, you walk around to face her. And as you do, the first inklings that something is wrong take hold. The woman is still weeping, but her white clothes that glowed in the moonlight now look drab and gray. They're dripping. She starts muttering something about her children, and the roughness of her voice steals your attention away from her garb to her hands, still covering her face as she weeps. They, too, are gray, but not like an elderly woman, like that of a corpse. Shocked, you automatically take a few steps back, your heart beginning to race. As you stammer, the pair of bony hands slide from the woman's face until you see them. For the first time, the woman acknowledges your presence and you see them, her eyes. Her face is torn and skeletal, but her eyes, her eyes bore into you, demanding with their tears to give her back her children. What? Your brain reels at the accusation that you're to blame. You have no idea what she's talking about, you attempt to say, but the words lodge in your throat. Finally, you manage to break yourself away, and you run. The weeping and begging continuing in your wake. At last, you're home with the door shut soundly behind you, and you breathe. It was dark. You tell yourself you didn't see what you thought you saw. You tell yourself that you didn't hear her weeping, except you did hear her weeping, and you did see her, and so, for the next few weeks, you'll attempt to deceive yourself into thinking that you still don't hear it in the small hours of the morning, a weeping somewhere off inside your own house, that you didn't awaken the night before with a start because she was there, in your room, looming over you. You'll try and fail, because you did see her. You saw La Llorona and her weeping face, demanding that you tell her where her children are. And you can't ignore it because it will be the last face you ever see. Don Nuno turned the key in the door and beamed as Luisa stepped over the threshold. She looked on the apartment. It was simple for a nobleman like him, but nicer than any place she had ever lived before. It was for her, he told her, for them. Luisa tried to smile. She had hoped for too much, she knew. Luisa had met Don Nuno at a party. Well, he was at the party. She was at work. She had swung over to fill his water cup, and he didn't take his eyes off her for the rest of the night. He was around a lot after that party, and eventually she returned his smiles and his lingering touches. It was too good to be true, until it wasn't. One night, they kissed, and Louisa's life changed forever. The couple was young, and things were simple and fun. Louisa's family was already gone, either by disease or violence, and that meant that she didn't have anyone waiting up for her, no one checking if she was at home or staying over at one of Don Nuno's many apartments in the city. At Don Nuno's pleading, she stopped working and allowed him to pay for her humble little home. In time, Luisa became pregnant. It didn't matter that she didn't sleep at home. That could be explained away but an unwed pregnancy in those days was something entirely different. It was a sin, and the church was powerful. She wasn't showing yet, but it was only a matter of time. Tearfully, she went to Don Nuno. To Lisa's surprise, he only smiled at the news. Well, if she was pregnant, then there was only one thing they could do, right? She had hoped for too much, she knew, when she looked upon the apartment that she had hoped was a ring. He had been so excited, and she had been hopeful. Luisa's heart sank at the confirmation of what she had been trying not to believe for the past year. She would always be a mistress, never a wife. With a sigh, Luisa mustered her best smile, but Don Nuno could tell something was wrong he put his hand on her shoulder. They couldn't, he couldn't. It wasn't that he didn't want to, he wanted to more than anything. It was his parents. They don't approve of me, Luisa said, before he could finish. They don't know, and they can't, ever, Don Nuno corrected. If they knew he was carrying on with with someone like her, they could disinherit him. Luisa stared at the ground, Someone like her, she knew she'd hoped for too much. Don Nuno lifted her chin to meet her eyes. This was how the world worked. She knew it better than he did, but none of that mattered. He loved her, and he would always be there for her. He chuckled, be here for her actually. They lived together, they'd be a family, together. Louisa put a hand on her abdomen and looked around the room again there really wasn't any alternative. Turning, she stared deeply into Don Nuno's eyes. She believed him when he said he loved her. She only wondered how much. Throughout most of her pregnancy, Luisa hid. All three of her pregnancies, actually. All the while, Don Nuno continued receiving his mail in his old apartment and he wrote regularly to his family on the other side of the country. But, it was with Luisa and the children at the secret apartment that he spent all of his time. Eventually, Don Nuno began inviting friends over to his secret home, just the ones that could be trusted with the secret, of course. And then he learned something. No one cared. No one cared about his lover, their children, or the secret apartment. In fact, his high society friends came to respect Luisa as one of their own, after just a single conversation with her. Together, they threw parties in the apartment, and everyone who was anyone showed up to their events. Don Nuno even called Luisa his wife, and for nearly a decade, life was like a dream for the woman who had grown up with nothing, until the mail came. The mail came not to one of Don Nuno's many apartments, but to the one he shared with Luisa and the kids. At the sight of the return address, Don Nuno's face blanched. Quickly, he read the message and tossed it onto the desk before storming to the window to light a cigarette. While he smoked, Luisa walked over to the desk and unfolded the letter. It was simple and short. A letter from Don Nuno's parents, saying that his inheritance depended on him making a successful match. After many years of delaying the inevitable, they now insisted on him marrying a countess. They eagerly awaited his letter consenting to the match, and they would begin planning the ceremony. Don Nino finished his cigarette, and lit another one when he turned around. What was Luisa doing? Why was she reading his mail? She didn't get to do that. But Luisa shook her head. What would he write back to his parents? Don Nuno stood glaring at her, momentarily before his face relaxed he started sobbing. What could he write back? He could be honest with them, Luisa said. You know, stand up to them. He said he loved her, right? Well, how much could he love her if he abandoned her? If he abandoned their children. Don Nuno paused, then shook his head. He wouldn't be telling his parents about Luisa, but he would never abandon her. They would always have this place, She and the children would always be taken care of. Luisa stood there motionless, unable to even weep. He was weak, she told him, spineless. He loved his money more than he ever loved her or the children. Don Nuno wiped his eyes and grabbed his coat without saying another word. All was silent except for the slam of the door behind him and the fading patter of footsteps into nothing. This week's episode is brought to you by The Curse of La Llorona in theaters April 19th. Full of suspense and terror, The Curse of La Llorona depicts a grieving family facing off against an evil that has no bounds, the dark spirit of La Llorona. We saw this movie early and it was awesome. I feel like they really nail the depictions of La Llorona based on the folklore, yet the film really brings something new. Meet Anna Tate Garcia, a social worker and recently widowed single mom, struggling to balance both roles. Having not grown up with the legend, Anna also doesn't understand the desperation her client feels to protect her sons from this La Llorona figure. And so, unprepared for the very real threat her own kids will soon face, Anna puts her faith in Rafael, a former priest who left the church to serve the community as a curandero, a healer. Together, they prepare for an onslaught when La Llorona unleashes the full force of her supernatural wrath and begins hunting children while still weeping for her own who she drowned in a jealous rage? Have you heard her cries? From producer James Wan, *The Curse of La Llorona*. Rated R. In theaters April nineteenth. Two months later, a mere week after the arrival of Don Nuno's betrothed, the payments stopped coming. Food, rent, everything. Don Nuno hadn't returned since their fight and his upcoming marriage was the talk of the city. In desperation, Luisa went to the friends she had made over the years, all of Don Nuno's friends. All but one pretended to have never met her, quickly throwing her out onto the street. Luisa learned that the Countess, the woman Don Nuno was set to marry, had found out about her, the lowly serving girl who trapped her husband-to-be with lies the one who had gotten pregnant by an old boyfriend, no doubt, and pinned the blame on the innocent Don Nuno. The countess was more powerful than anyone else in the city, and word was she had gone behind her future husband's back to stop the payments, saying that Luisa's free ride was over. Her con had been discovered. Luisa went home that day, ducking past the landlord's apartment and climbing to her own. It was bare. She had already sold most of her furniture for food. No one would hire her, and though she tried begging, it was not enough. Her children cried, until their exhaustion outweighed their hunger. Finally, with the ringing of bells from across the city, the day came. Don Nuno, no, Count Nuno's wedding day. It was already hot when Luisa started out on foot. There was no way to stop it, she knew, but perhaps there was a chance to appeal to him, to honor the promise he had made a thousand times during their decade together that he would always care for her and the children. A few hours later, she returned to her apartment and found that it was no longer her apartment. The children were huddled outside, and she nodded. Like many times before, Louisa put on her best smile. She had just seen their father, she shared. Everything would be okay. They were going to be okay. Who needed this dump anyway? Louisa looked the old apartment building up and down before turning back to the children they would go to a far better place. A mansion. It was gonna be okay. They would be fine. How would they like something to eat? The children perked up at that, and the mother smiled. Excellent. It was a hot day though. So first, they better stop off for a swim in the lake. With the prospect of swimming and food, the children grinned for the first time in weeks. The whole way there, Louisa described the feast they were going to have that afternoon in their new home. It was going to be beautiful, and they would never go hungry again. It turned out their father was a good man after all. He loved them dearly, and only wanted them to be happy. The sun shone brightly as the children took off their clothes and jumped happily into the lake. Louisa, in her white dress, waded in after them, gently, she coaxed the younger two out to join the eldest, encouraging them to splash and play, have fun. It was still a bit of a walk to their new home and the feast, so they should cool down first. She smiled and laughed as the younger two grew more confident in the water, splashing and chasing after one another. Her nine-year-old looked up. Louisa waved him over. She hugged her son. Hey, he knew she loved him, right? The boy looked up in surprise. His mom was crying. Yes, of course, he said, nodding. Louisa began to sob. She was so sorry. The boy's look of confusion lasted only a brief second as she gripped his shoulder and shoved him under the water. Beneath the surface, the boy flailed and kicked, his splashing unnoticed by the other children playing further away. Luisa wept uncontrollably as he struggled until he didn't. She had arrived at the cathedral just as the vows were taking place. She'd seen the countess, the new bride, looking very much like Luisa did back when she first met Nuno. The pair said their vows, and the cathedral erupted into overwhelming applause. Don Nuno now Count Nuno, he had seen her. She knew he did. As the pair was walking out, she had screamed his name and he glanced over before quickly looking away. His face had fallen pale and ashen, but he kept walking. That day, the sound of the cheering crowd in the pews drowned out Luisa's sobs. There was no way out of this nightmare. It was either starve alongside her children, hoping that they would go first so that she could cradle each one as they died, or take them to the lake and let their last day be filled with dreams of what she'd hoped they'd find in heaven. As her oldest stopped moving, she knew that there would be no heaven for her. These days, she didn't bother praying anyway. So many prayers over so many years had gone unanswered. The other two children were easier than the first. They had only just started swimming and weren't as strong. By now, the people on the shore began to notice what was going on. Bubbles appeared on the water surface, then ceased altogether, as three forms floated to the top around Louisa. Someone had alerted the police, who blew their whistles and stomped into the water, but Louisa didn't run. She stood there and wept for her children. The news of the wedding was quickly overshadowed by the grisly murders that took place in the lake. Given the number of witnesses, the trial was a quick one. Less than one week after the murders, the people of the city gathered in the square to watch Louisa take a seat in the garage. Even after the executioner pulled the rope tightly around her neck, her tears continued to fall. In her final moments, as the life faded from her eyes, she mouthed one last thing about her children. At that moment, At the far end of the crowd, Count Nuno stood, his face aghast. He'd had no idea the woman at the lake had been Louisa, no idea that the children that died were his. Next to him, the Countess tugged at his arm for them to go. He looked at his new bride, then back to the scene on the square, swallowed and followed. That night, in their mansion, the Countess called to her husband that the servants had dinner ready but there was no reply. She made her way toward the office, but found that it was locked from the inside. She knocked on the door, trying to get him to open up. It was when the butler returned with the skeleton key that the countess got the feeling that something was horribly wrong. When at last the door creaked open, they found Count Nuno hanging in his office, his suicide note consisting of two words, I'm sorry. Usually, a story like this would be a tragedy, and that would be the end of it. But here, that's not the case. It all started with reported instances of a strange weeping. On dark nights, when no one roamed the streets, they would hear her. A woman calling out through sobs, searching for her children. La Llorona, they called her. The weeping woman. She was constantly looking for them. But then, the disappearances began children up and vanished. There weren't many cases, but one here or there was still too many. Stories circulated, rumors of a woman crying in some alleyway, a group of kids finding her there. Some of the kids might laugh, others might jeer, and one who was particularly bold would end up approaching her. Well, the last thing the group of children would see was that lone child being led away by the woman dressed in white, never to be seen again. According to some parts of the legend, when she found her way to the afterlife. She stood at the gates of heaven, but was denied entry until she had her children with her. And so, Louisa had to return. She had to occupy the world between the living and the dead, trapped in the madness of grief, searching for, but never finding, her children. She's not just a danger to children, though. There are stories that are hundreds of years old of grown adults rushing to her aid in the street and being marked for death there are even hints that simply knowing the legend of La Llorona can lead her to you. So, you know, sorry about that. In most cases, a sickness comes upon the witnesses of La Llorona and they die quickly. In those stories, no one knows what the witnesses of that sad specter see or hear in the moments before they die. If, in the time leading up to when they finally go, they hear her weeping once again as she comes for them. I love that this legend has transcended culture and distance. In fact, the story of La Llorona is as different as the many places it's told. The one I heard before went like this, a woman is in love with a man, finds herself betrayed by that man, and subsequently murders the children that came out of that relationship. Then, trapped in a horrific limbo between life and death, she stalks the world over looking for her lost children. Whether she's ignorant of her actions, or unable to face the reality of what she's done, she doesn't realize that her children are gone, slain by her own hand, and so she begins stealing other children that she finds. That's generally the main story, but details change from place to place, and multiple variations of La Llorona abound. For example, today's main story goes off of one of the most fleshed out versions I could find, but it's by no means the official version. In some tellings I found, the La Llorona figure wasn't actually the mistress of a nobleman, but instead was his arrogant first wife, who he left for a younger woman. In those versions, La Llorona became so enraged that she either stabbed the children or took them to the river where she drowned them. Some legends say that she was then executed. Others say that she wandered all night before dying of grief on the open road. I found tellings where she was presented simply as an evil spirit hunting children while lamenting the fate of her own, and other variations showing her as being first and foremost a mother a warning for children to behave, lest she come for them, and therefore, person who helps families have what she never did. All these variations and versions, the different groups with native tellings, add to the beauty and the persistence of the La Llorona legend. There are even stories of modern-day parents putting their baby down for the night, only to hear a muffled cry over the monitor, a cry like they've never heard before, coming from the nursery. They rush to the other room, and even though they find it problem-free something inside them tells them to take their infant to a bassinet in their own room. They just had a feeling, they later say. And the next morning, they find footprints outside the child's first floor window, a cut screen, and fingerprints on the glass. So, unlike a lot of the stories we tell in this podcast, La Llorona's doesn't end. In every version, she's still out there, weeping for her lost ones. And, you know, maybe there's a reason there's no end to our story. Maybe, there's some truth behind the legend. That's it for this week. Next week, it's our 200th episode. And we're finally digging into the story of Robin Hood, the good outlaw, who, according to the earliest versions of the story, might not be so good. It seems like early Robin might have been less about stealing from the rich and giving to the poor and more into stealing from the rich and giving to himself. I would like to say thanks to Tink 1367, Bassbone Bifo, FrankPhotos, Frank Photos, 2, Thomas Fugassi, FastResults, Fast Results, Mislip, A. G. merlock Jameel Lannister, Loaf Senior, Most Deck, MHill 99, C.Chentastic, RFD 21, Ginger Underhill, CW558, Elder JC, and Karma Crane for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for leaving a review. And if you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is still the best place and you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of two and a half owl pellets, you can find extra episodes, source-back ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show that, sadly, will not take you on a journey of discovery through an owl's digestive system. You can find more info on the membership at support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the long-awaited, long-requested Chupacabra from Mexico, the southwestern United States, and Puerto Rico. Stories of the Chupacabra have been around for nearly 500 years. Starting way back in around 1540, Governor Francisco Vazquez de Coronado was on an expedition with conquistadors, foot soldiers, and... Because he was not a light packer, a herd of 1,500 cattle, they were trekking through what is now New Mexico, looking for the seven cities of gold. Spoiler alert, they did not find it. They did, however, find inconvenience at the hands and teeth of small blue-skinned horned men with torches and spears. They were reportedly seen among the cattle one night, and by the next morning, the majority of the herd was dead, having had their blood drained from two tiny holes in their throats. The natives in the area told Coronado and his men about the creatures. Quiet things with bat wings, cat eyes, and blue skin. They could cover long distances with a single jump, and kill quietly and quickly. They only seemed to drink the blood of livestock, and generally avoided humans. Which sounds good at first, until you remember that livestock in those times, was how a lot of people stored their wealth. So the chupacabra could literally drain your bank account in a single night. Well, Coronado didn't care about fairy tales, but instead demanded more information about the very real seven cities of gold that he was expending real human lives to find and trekked on through what is now the American Southwest. Forcefully deterred by people who weren't thrilled about armed conquistadors stomping through their lands, Coronado returned to Mexico City in defeat. He made a note about the strange creature, and then the world promptly forgot about it for 400 years until it resurfaced in 1995 in Puerto Rico when eight sheep were discovered dead and according to some, completely drained of their blood. In the three years that followed, things grew from terrible to worse. 150 farm animals and pets were killed in Puerto Rico, as the mysterious attacks continued to spread. According to eyewitnesses, the creature now looked different than the one sighted in the 1500s. These days, it looked like a small, hairless bear with spikes running down its back, and it was reportedly given the name Chupacabra by Silviero Perez a Puerto Rican comedian who was working as a radio DJ at the time. Chupacabra, of course, means goat sucker in Spanish, because this little sucker loves goats. It's not picky, though. It'll drink pretty much any non-human blood. Some hikers in the year 2000 reportedly saw it at their campsite and woke up to find their water bottles drained the next morning, with probably a really disappointed chupacabra lurking nearby. By now, there are plenty of theories about what exactly the chupacabra is, Some think that it's a straight-up alien. Some think that it's a government experiment gone awry, like an escaped demogorgon for goats. Close inspection by the few farmers able to capture one revealed their catches turned out to be coyotes, ravaged by an advanced mange. Anyway, from those instances in Puerto Rico in the 90s, the chupacabra legend has grown significantly. Sightings have been made as far north as Maine, and then throughout Mexico, Central and South America, the Philippines, and even Russia as the legend continues to grow and evolve. Somewhere along the line, the Chupacabra ended up with cool new powers. Like never leaving tracks or a scent trail, being able to avoid all traps, and pull a classic Odin, you know, transforming into an old man wandering the countryside. The legend of the Chupacabra continues to this day. Its varied descriptors continuing to defy classification. I just did a Google News search for this elusive character, and there are articles as recent as six months ago, One tells of a creature caught on a night vision camera that biologists in North Carolina were trying to classify. Turns out it was just another coyote with mange. Another boasts that the chupacabra was caught in Florida, but that one was just a sick, hairless raccoon. Better luck next time. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. The theme song is by the band Broke For Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Colmes. There are links to even more music in the show notes. I want to say thanks again to The Curse of La Llorona for sponsoring us this week. Have you heard her cries? The Curse of La Llorona is full of suspense and terror, as recently widowed social worker Anna Tate Garcia tries to protect her children from an evil that knows no bounds. The dark spirit of La Llorona is hunting children and weeping for her own, who she drowned in a jealous rage. From producer James Wan, The Curse of La Llorona, only in theaters April 19th. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.